You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you about our sponsor and a service that I am a fan of, Mubi. Uh, I get Mubi on my Apple TV. You can stream it just about anywhere. It's a curated online cinema that streams exceptional films from around the globe. Uh, they got documentaries, stuff from festivals, classics. Uh, they just had a, I saw a Jean-Pierre Melville retrospective. I always look forward to the email telling me what's new. They introduce one movie it's a hand-picked gem every day and you have one month to watch it it is that simple give it a try mubi m-u-b-i dot com slash long form gets you a uh, movie free for 30 days and you'll be supporting the show thank you mubi here's the show Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. They are my co-hosts. Joyous occasion. My pilots, my co-pilots. Great show for you today. I talked to Michael Idoff, who I've been trying to get on the show for, I can tell you, literally five years because I looked back on emails. And the reason I was originally trying to get him on the show, which is still why I was trying to get him on the show, is he wrote this incredible story. Movie set that ate itself. The movie set that ate itself about this like belabored production of a movie that uh, this Russian director who I really liked his first movie and they build a whole town and they spent like I think it's already um, it's already the most expensive movie in Russian history and I emailed him in 2013 being like when's that movie coming out movie has still not come out Whoa, <laughs> still being I, worked on I think that uh, that article might be it might have garnered the biggest physical reaction in you of anything I've ever like watched love, you read. I love that article. You're just like hooting, hollering, slamming <laughs> desks. You had such a good time reading that piece. So um, Michael uh, was a kind of like a music critic around New York, writing um, art stuff, and then um, started doing features. He's written features for um, GQ. He was at New York for New York Magazine for a while, and then uh, he got hired through a really weird series of events as the editor-in-chief of GQ Russia, moved his family to Moscow, uh, had some pretty strange experiences, and uh, he wrote a book about that that's out now. It's called um, Dressed Up for a Riot. Uh, we talked about that, what it's like to edit a magazine in Russia, and uh, what he's up to now. It's a good one. Oh, man. 
I'm excited for this one. Was it was it rollicking? I would say it was pretty rollicking. It was about as rollicking as I get before noon. <laughs> If you've got rollicking good news to share with the people in your life, send it out with an email newsletter. It's the thing that people actually read, and the best way to do it is with MailChimp. They support this show, so you should support them. Thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Michael Idoff. Welcome, uh, Michael Idoff. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What what brings you to town now? I know that you're not, I just read your book, so I know that you don't live in New York City anymore. <laughs> well, actually, the book brings me to town because it's uh, coming out next month. Yeah. And I came here to record the audiobook of it, which was made for a really surreal trip to New York because I've been basically ensconced in this phone booth of a recording studio, just sitting, you know, in a room with padded walls reading my own book out loud, which is sort of what madness yeah. is like, right? <laughs> yeah. So the book, yeah. uh, Dressed Up for a Riot, covers pretty much like right around when street protests were breaking out in Moscow and you went there to become the head of GQ Russia. So catch me up on what's happened since the book. What, what are you up to now? Right. Well, you know, after sort of largely failing to put out a good magazine, in Russia, and part of the failing was, you know, me, and part of it was circumstances. And uh, I basically moved on to my sort of the actual thing I went to school for, my actual calling and uh, and forte, which is screenwriting. And I've been doing that ever since about 2015. And I've been living in Berlin since 2015, also. So that's uh, that's where I'm at, living in Berlin and writing movies and TV shows. It seems like each of these things is like comes off of the last thing in a somewhat unlikely manner. So going back to the period of your life before you emigrated to America, wh- like wh- where did your ambitions as a writer start? I mean, this is going to sound cheesy, but I knew by the age of like six yeah. that I wanted to be a writer, right after a very brief period of wanting to be a paleontologist when I was like five. So the paleontologist dream was gone by six, and that's it. That's basically, since then, I've been involved in some kind of storytelling, you know? I usually don't ask people on the show about their like early childhood, but one of the, the notable things in your book is that two of your friends from childhood went on to be successful, like, best-selling writing duo. Yeah, uh, was that like a competitive pursuit with you and them? Like, oh, we were, yeah, we've yeah. always been crazy competitive, and there were three of us, like three guys, in like a class that was otherwise all female. So our in Russia, you know, they don't shuffle classes. You're with the same people. You're with time. the same people, like first grade to like twelfth grade, right? Yeah. So yeah, so we went basically. We just kind of educated ourselves together. We like we would swap books and. Uh, and cassette tapes and just discuss everything and just kind of be like a unit. What were you reading as a trio? What was the... Oh, well, um, you know, the Russian classics, like they uh, drilled them into you way too early and still do. Like you're not supposed to understand what Anna Karenina is about in eighth grade. It's ridiculous, you know? It's like I'm 41 now and I feel like 
maybe the last two or three years of my life, like I have amassed enough experience to reread Anna Karenina and to actually like get the sophistication of like the multiple points of view that it has, you know. So instead of like the great Russian classics, which yeah. we were supposed to learn, we've been reading a lot of like Samizdat, uh, which just then the Russian press started publishing some things that had been suppressed before. So we've been reading a lot of Bulgakov. We've been huge fans of Vasily Aksonov. As well, Anthony Burgess was like a huge favorite of mine at that point, and it just started showing up in, uh, in Russian. Anyway, so yeah, we were reading a lot of that, but mostly we were like listening to just metric tons of like rock and roll music, obviously, and you know, new wave and all that. To go from that background, and I uh, I hate that I'm doing this because you basically read in the book about how you like do not like being sort of pigeonholed as a recent immigrant writer, but oh, coming from right. that experience, <laughs> um, what was it like coming to America and trying to write in English? Right. Well, it's funny because uh, when we were immigrating into the U.S. in 1992, I had just published in Latvia my first sci-fi story actually <laughs> I was 16 years old I had I just had my first publication wow. that's, in really, like that's a, impressive yeah, in I, mean, like I a, thought about doing that but I never <laughs> it never left no my no mailbox. it was like a teen thing I, I, I have <laughs> never like written sci-fi since but um that thing was published in like a, a Sunday edition of the local paper and of course in my mind when we were you know going to the states like I was leaving behind yeah. a brilliant literary career you know? yeah. so I threw all these fits to my parents I was like you are depriving me of the language like I will that's it like you are you know cutting me off at the roots I will never be anything because you know back then you know you didn't realize that in five more years you would be on email and like on ICQ with right. the same people you were friends with yeah because we were like right on the cusp of the internet era when we were leaving but it's still like my friends and i exchanged like actual written letters you know we spent fortunes on them in like 93 94 but anyway no of course it was a culture shock but you know what it's like look i went from a fairly sort of intellectual milieu to like being like a super poor kid on food stamps and like a really kind of hard like working class neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio. So the class-based culture shock, it's actually more significant, I think, than the actual like going from one country to another. Just like when I moved uh, from New York to Moscow, you know, to edit GQ in 2012, everyone in Moscow, like every interview I gave there, People were asking me, so what does it feel like to be back? And, you know, I said that, you know, actually today's Moscow and today's New York, they are less dissimilar than the Latvia that I left in today's Moscow. So it's actually not that big a deal now. It's like the biggest change is always, I think, in time, not in space. (laughs) (laughs) What were your first attempts to break into writing or to to do stuff so i came to the states in in the summer of 92 about september of 93 i went to cleveland state university and i immediately started writing for the local like the student paper it was called the cauldron so a year into being in the united states i was already like writing really bad film reviews for the cauldron And then I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and I immediately started writing for the Michigan Daily, which was like a a more reputable student paper that actually at times felt like working for like a real 
paper. So yeah, I, I started, you know, with film reviews because back then I sort of entertained the idea of becoming like a film critic when I, you know, grow up. And then I started writing plays because my sort of thinking went that my English was not enough for quality prose, but it was just sufficient for mimicking dialogue. And that's all you have to do. You know, everything else is not as language dependent. So I graduated with just a bunch of theater plays and a bunch of film reviews. Uh, So I went to New York and I really had no idea where to like, where and to whom to show my theater stuff. And I was not a theater kid. Like I was, you know, I actually enjoyed plays more as written. Like I would go to the library and read like David Mamet or something. Like I, I never actually wanted to like go to the theater <laughs> and see it. <laughs> like, it was, I feel like you're the only person who's like not a theater kid I've ever heard of like reading. Like among people I know, like theater is such a like a, all-encompassing like pursuit as like a teenager that like the yeah. only people I know who ever were trying to write plays were like lived and breathed oh theater. god no 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 I actually kind of dislike theater because <laughs> first of all I'm I was always like afraid of actors and I could never understand them <laughs> like as human beings I'm with you uh, right so yeah so I had my favorites like I really really adore uh, David Herson as the playwright for example but I only saw one of his plays on stage and again I just like reading his place so I yes I'm weird that way anyway so yeah I didn't know what to do theater wise and I just uh, started showing my film clips around and uh, then uh, next thing I knew I was interning at the Village Voice and writing little things for them and uh, then it was like a pretty straight progression kind of up the usual like New York journalism ladder yeah. uh, with some weird detours how did you get your first few magazine features? When did you start doing um, like stuff at that length? Well, I was <laughs> I was pretty shrewd about it actually when I really started getting into it because what I would do is I would get tiny little items into sort of things that you could get tiny little items in, and then use these items as pitches for larger stories in larger publications. Ah, And so, and I would kind of like try to game this out from the beginning. Like I would write a free blurb for Pitchfork and then I would use the Pitchfork blurb that already looks like more legitimate instead of like a cold pitch to Slate I will give them like the the pitchfork thing and say I can expand on this and then like if Slate takes it then like I can you know parlay that into something else. So that was basically the the, the game. What part. kind of stuff were you trying to mostly pitch mu- up the ladder that uh, way? Mostly music reviews at okay. that point. Film and music reviews. Yeah. I still thought of myself as primarily like a pop culture critic uh-huh. Uh-huh. at that point. But then slowly but surely it kind of mutated into kind of all-purpose journalism. I think my I mean my sort of my big break, I don't know, I feel silly to use these words, but uh, my big break was, in fact, a a Slate story in late 2005. And it just goes to show that the best thing you can possibly do as a journalist is to forget you're a journalist, go out, have some authentic experiences, uh, preferably, like, fail at something really hard, and then write about (laughs) that, because that's what resonated. Um, Which story was that? Well, it was called Bitter Brew, and it was a first-person essay about trying to like run a coffee house that my wife and I co-owned very briefly yeah. on the Lower East Side, and it was just a funny 1,200-word piece uh, for Slate. 
it was kind of evergreen uh, because it had no news bag to it. So they held on to it for a couple of months. And then they published it, I remember, on December 30th of 2005. And I thought, all right, well, uh, no one's going to read it. Like everyone's <laughs> They just... must really believe in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, whoa, that's, yeah. <laughs> and then on New Year's Day, like I wake up and I look at my email inbox. This was back when you checked email once a day. And... Uh, <laughs> And there's hundreds of emails uh, in it because it just really resonated with people. Like this just kind of funny sort of self-deprecating story about like trying to run a coffee house and failing and like fighting with your wife as a result. And I was buried uh, under an avalanche of uh, similar stories by people who were just reminiscing about their own failed business ventures. And then, you know, hidden among those emails was an email from uh, the late, great Nora Ephron, who read the story and uh, wrote to me saying, I think this will make a great book or maybe even a charming little movie. Let me introduce you to my agent. Her agent was Amanda Binky Urban, uh, one of the sort of most famous and best agents in, in the world. And a few other agents called me after the story, and everyone wanted me to do like a nonfiction, kind of like a business self-help book yeah. out of it, which I was really not interested in. So, and I kept thinking, like, well, <laughs> like no. a funny alternate like yeah. timeline of your life where you wrote a self-help book about I know. it, and now you're like a like successful self-help author. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'd, I'd be probably like much you know wealthier, but I think it would be I would be really miserable. But anyway, so. I would just tell them, like, look, I don't want to do a self-help book, uh, yeah. you know, or a business advice book, God forbid. But, like, I will, if you want, I, I can totally do it as a novel, like, as a satirical novel. Yeah. At this point, everyone just went, like, click, you know. Yeah. It's like, it's like, like, oh, yeah, I was like, okay, a satirical novel, great, yeah. bye-bye. And, and right. as you were telling them that you could do a satirical novel, like, had right. you published fiction at this point? Or was no. There, this was no, all just nothing. kind of, like, on spec. Yeah, exactly. I was like, look, like, what I want, really want to do is tell stories, yeah. like, unencumbered by, like, what actually happened. So, I, yeah. you know, I want I wanted to do this as a novel. And Binky Urban was the only one to not hang up on me immediately. And she was like, all right, well, are you aware of the fact that you will probably get like 10 to 50 times less money yeah. for this as a novel? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I, but still like, and I did do this as a novel. Yeah. And she sold it and got published as Ground Up. It came out in 2009. It did okay, but nothing spectacular in the States. And here is where the story gets really crazy because uh, my wife Lily and I translated it into Russian, pretty much just for bragging rights, you know? Yeah, I was going to uh, like, did you get paid for that or were you just like... Uh, peanuts. peanuts. Yeah. But I just wanted to be able to say that I'm the, the only guy since Nabokov to write something in English and translated myself into Russian. I was going to say, two things that people have consistently yeah. told me take way longer than they thought were recording the audiobook of their book and translating their own Well, book. I can now, uh, <laughs> you know, I can confirm both. So, yeah, it took like half a year to translate it, and, and it was excruciating because Russian was still sort of my native language. Yeah, I was going to say, were you like, like confident I've in like your Russian translation? Really not confident at all. Yeah, I was, I was very scared because, yeah. I mean, it was grammatically correct, but like... You know, you still have to be in the context. You have to, like, know the latest memes, know the yeah. latest slang, especially when you're writing about, like, relatively young people yeah. who are, like, basically, like, hipsters and yeah. sort of, you know, in a modern, like, urban situation. So, yeah, and then something really ridiculous happened, uh, that translation of it. It became a huge bestseller in Russia, and that basically 
preordained the rest of everything that happened to me because then it won I won like writer of the year at the Russian GQ awards and then uh, that slowly but surely like led to me taking over the Russian GQ etc cetera, etc cetera. so basically I can trace my entire life to that one article for Slate in 2005. Okay, so I won't make you explain the entire chain of events that went from uh, you having a middlingly successful American novel to you becoming the editor of GQ Russian. Pretty rapid-fire sequence of events, but uh, it's in the book. It's very entertaining. When you sat down that first day and arrived and were like, okay, and now I'm the editor of uh, GQ, like, what was your plan? What, like... Did you have a vision for what you should be in the media world of Moscow 2012? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty cocky in terms of what I thought I would be able to do with the yeah. magazine, you know. At that point, I had been uh, working at uh, New York Magazine for six years as yeah. a contributing editor, and I was also freelancing at yeah, the American GQ. New you Republic know, for, and GQ. Yeah, but, but, you know, so my kind of biggest influences in terms of editing yeah. were in fact you know Adam Moss's New York and uh, and Jim Nelson's yeah. GQ so those were the people whose ideas I tried to kind of bring to Russia you know uh, Adam Moss's uh, famous kind of package approach when you take a topic and it can be a mundane or a, almost a random topic like breakfast or circumcision yeah. and you just attack it from like five, six, seven angles. You do right. an essay, a listicle, a photo essay, et cetera, and you just kind of gloriously like exhaust this topic so that your competition will feel silly even broaching the subject for the next five years because you've said everything there could be, you could possibly say on the subject. Yeah. So I, I always loved that approach. And Jim Nelson's kind of relentless search of the service component and everything like in a good way, you know, yeah. it's like, what do I as a reader get out of this? Like, what is the takeaway? What is the use? What's new? So, yeah, that those were the things that were really in my head when I headed over to Russia to do this. Because the Russian publishing or the Russian magazine uh, world is not that dissimilar from, like, French. Mm. It's uh, very column-based. Right. So lots of just public intellectuals kind of bloviating on uh, whatever topic strikes their fancy. And they have their own you know, name columns. So a magazine would be like half of the magazine would just be personal essays right. running virtually unedited. And then the other half would be like Q&As, you know, and they would barely do sort of the American profile type thing where you fold the quotes into the body of the article. They'll just do a straight Q&A with an intro, you know. That's that was, more of a European kind of way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, the kind of experience of like what you had been doing at least the stuff I've read I know you've like done lots of stuff but like I first encountered your work like the profile you wrote of this um, Russian film director who had built this entire set that was a town that was also a set and a town I guess um, and you profiled um, the richest man in Georgia does that stuff really exist in like a Russia GQ like a big profile feature that's not like a Q&A but is like the writer kind of giving you their take and their sort of first person experience. Well, that, it existed when I was <laughs> yeah. there. Yes. Yeah, I was going like, to say, like, <laughs> like when you're trying to hire for right. something like that and that right. like format doesn't exist, are you like trying to import writers or how do you tackle it? No, well, I did import a couple of writers. I was very happy to work with Julia Yaffe, who's, uh, you know, a friend and we kind of started out together. So she actually did a, a great profile of the American ambassador at the time, Michael McFall. 
for my GQ that yeah. then I think a version of it ran in like you know an yeah. American magazine I think the New Republic or foreign policy and um, yeah and I did the same things myself like I was a writing editor you know I yeah. did that profile of Bidzina Ivanishvili the you know the richest man in Georgia who was running for prime minister at the time uh, I did it for the Russian GQ and then the New Republic uh, oh, okay. published it as well so yeah so I was uh, lucky enough to be able to yeah. do that so obviously I was trying to present myself as like a David Remnick like figure of just like I would need like three weeks a year to like go off and do my own you know you're gonna write, write a book on the side at night right so. right <laughs> <laughs> exactly I don't know how he does it but um, uh, but anyway so I met with a lot of skepticism of course a lot of my Russian friends were saying like oh you will never find good writers here yeah. you will spend like your entire time just trying to explain to people how it works but honestly I found a group of fantastic writers and I think one of my maybe um, sort of legacies after I left the Russian GQ is that almost everyone I've worked with at GQ Russia are still writing and doing an amazing job as a long-form journalists in Russia. Yeah. I noticed kind of a connect, like in rereading um, through your archive of long-form magazine features, a lot of them, I mean, that experiential element is pretty common. And like in the case of that film story and the story about uh, The Richest Man in Georgia, you're kind of like put in this situation where your role and like welcomeness in the place where you're supposed to be reporting is like kind of unstable. I'm curious, like how you navigate situations like that. Like what were your first big stories um, where you were out reporting and doing profiles like? Well, I think the the Dow story, the one about Ilya Khrushchevsky, the yeah. sort of the mad film director who's uh, still doing post production on that. Film, I was going to say eight I, years later. I have uh, been following that story right. for a very long time. So the story, I, I actually saw his first movie for. I had a right. friend who was like working. I feel like the box office at the Tribeca like, mm-hmm. film festival. I could be wrong about one film festival. And he was like, yo, there's one movie played that was fucking insane. You should try and get this movie. At the time I was really deep in like torrenting inter- international movies that were like out somewhere else, but not in America. So I found a torrent. It had already come out in, in Russia, I think. So I got a torrent of it and I watched it. And I was just like, I mean, for anyone listening, uh, I think it was, it may actually be on Netflix now. Uh, Could very well be. The, the movie yeah. is titled Four. Uh, and so you wrote this profile, the director making his second movie, uh, in which he had already burnt untold sums of money, constructed an entire town, had an entire cast of people basically living in this town uh, as actor slash, I mean, as, as a job, basically. Right. Um, so, like, Describe for me, like, dropping into that situation as a reporter. Well, I was definitely in kind of a weak position because basically sort of access to the set meant playing by his rules. Yeah. And that meant just kind of like stripping off everything, uh, you know, literally stripping off everything because uh, on the set... It was the year 1956 or whatever, and so you had to wear period clothes down to the underwear in order to gain access. And, of course, uh, there was this weird subjective element of it. It's like, how much of this is a performance? You know, like, is this guy programming 
what I will write by yeah. like having all like basically contriving all these things to happen like ha like having a young woman like playing a, a waitress at a Soviet uh, grocery store like come and like hit on me and right. uh, things like that you know and there's and, like a there's a slight element the story evokes and I don't know if this is like an intention on your part where you also start to wonder the experience that all of these people who are acting in this movie like you feel like you're getting fucked with, but potentially they're also getting fucked oh, with by yeah, other in actors. Major like, ways. The and, fuckery kind of goes ev right, every right, which right. way. Because in the he's story. right, because he's created a totalitarian society where yeah. you survive by snitching on other yeah. uh, people, and then that's when I realized that although I'm actually, despite what you uh, you said, I'm not actually a huge fan of inserting myself uh, as a character into right. magazine stories. But here I realized that the only way to tell the story is to basically chronicle what being back in a way in a totalitarian society yeah. albeit a really small one is doing to me and how it's turning me into a snitch you know yeah. and so that's why the like the culmination of the story is me like ratting out my own photographer yeah. so that he can get thrown out uh, from the set so I get to stay which is like basically the logical end result of being in this sort of totalitarian mindfuck situation but honestly one aside is that I will I'm very curious to see how in the sort of post Harvey Weinstein moment this movie will fair because if you go back to my uh, story yeah. and actually if you re-interview you know people who've worked on the movie that film the circumstance of creating this film has been one like horrendous sexual harassment fest yes. you know because part of sort of Khranovsky's uh, entire raison d'etre is exercising control to the extent of like sometimes mental torture and really really nasty manipulation of young women that's a really disturbing side of that uh, that movie so I think that you know the movie will come out eventually in one form or another but before anyone celebrates it uh, too hard they should probably also look at completely obvious abuse and harassment that actually like, permeated the entire set what story. what's the status of the movie now? I mean, part of what's kind of powerful about the story is you feel like you're reading like an oral history of Apocalypse Now or something, except without having seen Apocalypse Now. Like the fact that you can't see the movie makes the images that you evoke in the story seem like very viscerally real. Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, I was on set in 2010. The story ran in 2011. I believe by the end of 2011, beginning of 2012, they finally finished filming and they yeah. celebrated by burning down the set, which yeah. they've lived on for like four years at the time, uh, at that moment. And then since then, Kozhanovsky uh, has been sitting in London, uh, continuing to be lavishly funded by this uh, insane Russian oligarch who keeps giving him like tens of millions of dollars to continue this charade. And quote-unquote editing the movies so what do you, what do you think is really happening well the movie does exist and yeah. there's uh, if anything there's too much of it there's like 10 movies so right. they've been talking about maybe releasing it as like an immersive experience with like a live element or maybe building theaters like that are going to be like temples of Tao, where yeah. which would show all these movies on like a 24-hour cycle and 
that would be like site specific sort of things that like in the major cities of the world anyone could come in and and watch Dow and then in October of 2017 uh, something like this was in fact supposed to happen in Berlin they rented out like almost like a city block yeah. of Berlin and started hiring like all the circus performers and I think they were trying to hire a bunch of psychiatrists because they had this harebrained idea that after watching the movie, every person who watches the movie needs to have like a debriefing in front of a psychiatrist and just more and more kind of madness. But basically what they're doing now, at this point, it's the it's the mo- by far the most expensive Russian movie ever made. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think the budget is around like $70 million at this point. So I think what Kranovsky is rather shrewdly trying to do is to move the whole thing from the realm of movie making where it will never make its money back and the oligarch bankrolling it might have some questions about like where the hell his money went into the realm of modern art, kind of like a huge like immersive modern art experience including like performances by Marina Abramovich and songs by like Russian songwriters etc etc so that at least in the realm of modern art it's not unusual to pay 70 million for something that just kind of hangs on your wall or just exists out there you know so in that sense you know the main sponsor of the movie ends up with like a giant artwork on his hands as opposed to just a crazy long movie that will maybe play some festival <laughs> when you write a story like that and that story is really like kind of the only thing you can find about it online like <laughs> like uh i know ranovsky really must hate that i know i know that because i googled it this morning because i was like has that movie come out nope right. so has it come out like does it stick with you like you're kind of still a part of that story I try to follow what's happening with yeah. the movie, yeah, and I have my spies in the world of the movie, so that's why I knew about this like botched Berlin premiere in October. Is he, is the so director is not happy with you in the end. Though. No, no, not at all. No, <laughs> no, I think he's he's got to be very unhappy with me, and because obviously the image and the story and the narrative that I am delivering to the world is clearly not the narrative that he wanted. Yeah, me to broadcast by bringing me onto the set so yeah but hey that's fine. no i mean i mean i'm i'm just very proud of that story like yeah. i i don't like a couple of turns of phrase i thrown into that story but otherwise i think it's probably the most accomplished magazine story that i've done uh, in my memories so. do you are you inclined to go back to like magazine feature writing as something you would do in the future or are you i mean you've already done like three things at a pretty high level um like writing nonfiction, editing a magazine, and and now screenwriting. Right. Well, it's hard. Like, I've, uh, over the last two years, I've done two magazine stories, and yeah. both were pretty much just autobiographical. You right, know, right, I've done, right. like, a thing for New York Times magazine, yeah. basically about being a Russian screenwriter. Yeah. And I've done a story for New York magazine uh, early in 2017 about this idea of like the lack of trust in institutions in Russia and how we should watch out for that in Trump era America. So I probably wouldn't be able to do this full time again because it's just uh, once you start working in movies, it's just, it's a drug you can't really quit. Yeah. But obviously I'm, I'm, I love the magazine long story format and you know that. If I can afford to work <laughs> in it, I, yeah. I, I will. You know, how did you start screenwriting in Russia, and what's it like? You know, oh, I'm already an experienced feature writer, but now I'm doing something that I'm like kind of starting at zero again with. 
Well, it's not really fair because that's what I actually went to school for. So true, it was true. more like, uh, you know, it more was more like, like something I was just like sitting on and not using for, for years. And then being in Russia just kind of gave me like the impetus to do this because yeah. I was actually so kind of depressed uh, at the GQ job uh, <laughs> in Russia that I needed something just kind of for myself. So I started writing kind of on spec and then started showing What What depressed people. you about the GQ oh, job? Oh, the political situation. The fact that like my efforts to create a quality magazine you know, met little to no appreciation from the very people I tried to reach, like the anti-Putin kind of opposition crowd that I basically came to Russia in a way to to describe, but also to join in a way, you know, that basically a lot of them just turned out to just be unbelievable assholes to me for basically just coming to Russia because there's that amazing self-hatred that a lot of progressive Russians feel for anything Russian. So, the same people who would kind of look up to me when I was at New York Magazine, as soon as I would like cross over and come to Moscow and take a Moscow job, the very fact of me coming to their country, to them, was selling out. I know it sounds absurd, but that's that's how they think. It's just like, ah, so you went to Russia. This must be only for money because for what earthly reason could you like would you leave a job in the United States and come to our, to borrow a word from our president, uh, shithole country, you know? <laughs> but that's how they, they, they feel. And and so this bizarre Russophobia yeah. of the actual Russians that I dealt with was yeah. just an, a completely impenetrable obstacle well, to, to trying to reach them. Was that, like, socially isolating for you, or was that also make it, like, hard to do your job as a magazine editor? Both, yeah. both, of course, because the people I... Uh, considered my friends uh, before I came to Russia a lot of them would like not have anything to do with me because they thought I had sold out to like the soulless world of high gloss glamour because that's how they perceived GQ and I didn't even realize right. that but that, they wouldn't have thought that if you were like working at GQ America no well, not only, at all only, no yeah. no no but because they would tend to like romanticize all American yeah. magazines, but like the Russian GQ, they couldn't even perceive it as like an international magazine, as a yeah. condonast magazine. They perceived it as like a place where uh, good writers can go like bang out articles that no one back in the scene reads and make a quick buck because we despise what that publishing house stands for, uh, yeah. but we'll still take their money. So, But now you're like, you know, you're in there and like all we see is like your Instagram from like the Milan Fashion Week. And I was like, well, yeah, but that's what I have to do as part of the job. I can't just do half of my job, you yeah. know. And so I couldn't get over that idea that for a lot of progressive westernized Russians, the magazine I ended up, heading up, no matter what I would do with it, the very fact of me working for that magazine would brand me as kind of vaguely pro-status quo and possibly even pro-Putin right. just for sort of for taking the dirty money, you know. So if you had come to Russia as a freelance writer or, um, you know, with a contract to write features for Vanity Fair about Russia or something like that, it would have been a totally different experience. Yeah, of course. And I had done that before because yeah. I would come to Russia to do stories for the New York Republic and for New York Magazine. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, cool. they love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but as soon as you take a job in Russia, I was yeah. like, oh, Oh, you're just as much of a piece of shit as the rest of us. Yeah, <laughs> and so you got depressed and thought. Yeah, I was in. Incre- no, I was. I was fun. as miserable as yeah. I had ever been in my life. Uh, yeah, and you had your uh, whole family there. So uh, yes, and like- I dragged my. Yeah, I had dragged my wife and like one year old kid there, and 
Also, one thing I was not prepared for was that, you know, in Russia, editors-in-chief of magazines are kind of B-list celebrities. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously in the States, we have like our, you know, Graydon Carter and uh, Anna Wintour. Yeah. But they're like basically every man is a Graydon Carter and every woman is an right. Anna Wintour. So there's just an insane amount of uh, like media and public attention on you. And it's just not, I mean... I'm not yeah. trying to sound cute, but like yeah. I, you know, I, it's really not me. Like I, yeah. I'm as vain as the next guy. Like I like my work to be known, but I really hate for my face to be known. Like right. I don't like playing that whole thing of like going to parties and being photographed. Yeah, especially just the extent to which a lot of it was basically just performed for the advertiser's sake. You know, like right. I had a like a watch advertiser pull their ads because I was too sick to come to a concert that they were sponsoring. Like I was supposed to come and like be photographed at their logo well and I didn't right. and they pulled their goddamn ad. And it's like, that was the first time I, I realized that I'm in some sort of bizarre world. You right, know? which is a, yeah. in itself kind of a wacky world version of like the American Hollywood red carpet, like take your picture in front of a bunch of like ad logos. Like Right, 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 right. And it, and in Russia, that's their high society, you know, yeah. like whereas in America, like the, 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 the real high society would be like museum benefit and kind of like uh, charity based. Yes. There, like they don't do that. So most of what they do is like freaking product launches, you know, like right. that's where, like they go to a party for the launch of the new model of like BMW and all get photographed there. And then you have to be there because they're your, one of your biggest advertisers. Yeah. And then all the other people see, you know, the people you're try actually trying to reach. See is like you surrounded by some, by all these like Botoxed men and women. And you have no idea what you're doing there and your friends and former friends have no idea what game you're playing. And then you're just trying to put out a magazine, you know? What kind of exit plans did you start to formulate after you realized that this is what your life would be like as long as you were the editor of GQ Russia? I mean, they had always known that I was going to do this for either two or three years. Like uh, when they offered me the job, I guaranteed two years because otherwise like it wouldn't yeah. be worth for them, uh, worth it for them to bring me over. But yeah. the only question was two or three. Yeah. It ended up being like two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so the simplest exit w plan was just coming back to the U.S. Yeah. But... Then the movie thing happened because I started writing these scripts as therapy, really, uh, just writing them on spec. Like my friend uh, and I wrote this autobiographical sitcom pilot, literally about an American writer getting stuck in Moscow and being tempted with all these crazy, you know, enticements of the glamorous Moscow and like basically just kind of becoming a terrible person as a result. And I had no... You know, I had no illusions that this could ever be seen by anyone. But then I showed it to a couple of people. And that's kind of the great thing about Russia is like just things get done there. They get done badly, but they do get done because they were so starved for kind of fresh voices and, and you know, fresh talent. And uh, so it's not about me being great. It's about basically them just being like really stagnant culturally because the moment I showed this script around, like, Two weeks later, it had one of Russia's biggest actors and producers attached to it. And then they shot the pilot and then they ordered the entire series. And that's when I knew that I probably have to, you know, quit GQ then and then and devote myself to it. Then, of course, the, the ruble fell and the TV network changed heads and they 
canceled the series, but uh, I still got the pilot out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about what you're uh, writing now, screenplay-wise, or is it secret? I have directed my first movie. That's a Russian movie, and it's in Russian, but yeah. it was shot in Latvia, and it's co-produced by Russia, Latvia, and the Czech Republic. So uh, I'm editing it in Prague now, and it should be ready by the summer. And I'm writing an American uh, uh, TV pilot for TNT. Cool. Well, uh, thank you very much for this interview. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to our intern, Angela Velez. Thanks to our incredible sponsors, MailChimp and Mubi. Give Mubi a chance if you are sick of all the algorithms feeding you stuff you don't want. I get Mubi on my Apple TV. Each day they introduce a new handpicked gem of movie, whether it's a classic, a documentary, something from a festival, and you have one month to watch it. It's simply a better way to find something to watch and will save you the great emotional pain of uh, sitting with your loved ones and trying to figure out something to watch. I really recommend it. You can try it today free for 30 days by going to mubimubi.com slash longform. Thanks, Mubi. We will see you next week. If you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, editors at longform.org. We're always looking for feedback. We're always looking for sponsors. And we are always looking to hear from you, the listener, about who you'd like to hear on the show. Okay, see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.